Just to bring you up to date on the news of Europe, if you're just turning on your radios... Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated stations are proud to provide facilities for a discussion... Storytime in History with Miss Gitlin, a history education podcast so that you can learn without having to be in the classroom. Today's topic is going to be a little dark, a little horrifying, but very important to hear. The problem with today's topic is that it's going to lay bare the intensity of a war we don't think about too much beyond a few key highlights anymore, which is ridiculous because this will be the war that I think defines the modern age even more so than the ones the History Channel is obsessed with. World War I is our topic today, and it's a war that sets the tone for the 1900s and leads us to the Second World War that sets the tone for today. What I mean by that is that World War I, or the Great War, changed the world around it so fundamentally that it sparks a new era, a new way of thinking, and traumatizes a generation. Odd side note about that, um, and a way that I can prove what I just said, I was watching the latest Harry Potter movie, The Crimes of Grindelwald, which is the Fantastic Beasts movie, don't sue me. In it, one of the characters is listening to the villain's speech where Grindelwald reveals the future, what's going to happen next in the muggle world, and he shows them the atomic bomb, people marching off to concentration camps, and the destruction that's going to come to Europe in World War II. One of the main characters sees this imagery, and you can just watch his face fall, the horror come over him, and he says, another war. I think that sentiment is so impactful because, really, after World War I, no one believed that another war could happen because it nearly destroyed much of continental Europe. It shattered the old order, ended dynasties, and killed 20 to 22 million people. It's fitting, then, that such a bloody conflict starts with an assassination. Gavrilo Princip, a young man who's only 19 years old, he's about to turn 20 one month after this most famous act, um, Gavrilo Princip is going to shoot and kill the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie in Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which was under occupation at the time by the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Gavrilo Princip wanted Bosnia and Herzegovina to be independent and to join the Serbians and be free of Austro-Hungarian control, and Franz Ferdinand is the heir to that empire. So he shoots the Archduke and his wife, and he's going to set off a chain of events that changed everything. I think that maybe if we showed him what his actions would cause, what the firing of that gun would do, he might not do it at all. Though at the time he thought a world war was inevitable, I wonder if we could have changed his mind. The domino effects of this attack by a Serbian nationalist against the Austro-Hungarian Empire happened quickly. Austria-Hungary went to their ally Germany to make sure that they would back them up. Serbia went to Russia to make sure that they would protect them. France and Russia agreed to honor their alliance, and Britain sat in the background, wondering how this would all play out. 
Because in the beginning, that was it. Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. Germany declared war on Russia. France declared war on Germany. It was a mess. But it showed some key problems. Because all of these alliances mixing and fighting, it's going to be a weak spot for all of these people. Number one, Austria-Hungary has a pretty inept army. The Serbian resistance fighters gathered up about 344,000 men. Austria-Hungary had 500,000. But despite this difference in numbers, Serbia was able to surprise and fright off the Austro-Hungarian troops, meaning Germany had very little assistance in the rest of Europe. So this war, these alliance systems all toppling over each other as a domino effect, most people thought it was going to end fairly quickly. And actually Germany has a plan for this. Because really, Germany's in a tough spot at the start of the war. They agreed to go to war with Austria-Hungary, fight on their side against the Serbians and the Russians, because really, the leader of Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm II, wanted to show how strong Germany had become. This war starts off as basically a pissing contest. Germany was the little brother of Europe. They were one of the newest countries, and they were one of the less respected countries as well. Compared to England and France and Russia, their history was shorter and more fractured. The Kaiser wanted to show everyone the strength Germany had to prove that they were one of the big boys. He had developed the first modern army, made up of hundreds of thousands and soon to be millions of men, trained them as foot soldiers, new gray uniforms that were much more easily camouflaged than the bright red and blue French uniforms of the time. And Germany had to play it smart. They quickly developed the Schlieffen Plan, which was their way that they thought that the war could be over quickly. The Kaiser even told all of his soldiers that the war would be over before the leaves fell. And to be fair, the Schlieffen Plan is pretty smart. See, if you look at a map, Germany is surrounded on both sides, one by Russia and one by France. Both had declared war on Germany at the start in 1914, when all of this started. Bit of a rough spot to be in if you're Germany. However, German military leaders already knew that this was the case, and that changed the playing field. Because they knew Russia was huge, but pretty slow moving. Their army couldn't be ready as fast as Germany's could. If Germany could beat France, knock them out of the war within about six weeks, they could turn their attention to Russia once they started mobilizing, and the war could be done in a year. Unfortunately, this plan, despite its intelligent design, meant that Germany was going to have to gamble. To attack France quickly and efficiently, they needed to surprise them on a border that wasn't already fortified. The small stretch of border between Germany and France had been fortified since the Napoleonic Wars, but there was a weak spot in there with a new country in between France and Germany, and that's Belgium. Belgium was a relatively weak and small country, and, if the Germans play their cards right, could provide the door into France if they could move fast enough. Now, at first, the German army is going to approach Belgium and ask to be let through. The German army commander apparently told the king of Belgium that if they let the army through, let them use their railroads and tunnels and bridges, that Belgium would be left alone. The king of Belgium asked for a little bit of time to think about it, and then immediately ordered his small army to blow up the bridges, blow up the railroads and the tunnels, and to prepare their fortresses. He would not have Germany walk all over Belgium. And this is where the first fights break out. The German army will now have to fight their way through Belgium, which is really going to put a damper on their time. They use heavy artillery, these massive guns, to blast the fortresses with shells and decimate towns and cities. 
Belgium is on fire within days. A famous story about the man who would become the military leader of Germany comes from one of these first Belgian battles. A simple staff officer, after bombarding a Belgian city, grabs a unit of his men one night and basically strolls into that Belgian city that surrounded a citadel, one of these fortresses, after he blasted the place with artillery all day before. This officer marches into the city and demands the Belgians surrender, and they do. Then apparently he marches up to the citadel, this fortress, and with his sword hilt, pounds on the door and demands their surrender. And they do too! This is Erich Ludendorff, one of the most famous German military minds of the time, and really one of the only ones that they can look back with pride, because World War II just has such an awful cause that you can't look back on it at all with any form of German nationalist pride. Belgium is a wasteland by the time the Germans are done with it, but Germany has made a mistake. In wasting Belgium, they have involved the only country that has a treaty with the largest naval power in the world, Britain. Britain had stayed out of the fight so far, they didn't have an alliance with France or Russia, and Germany wanted to keep them out for as long as possible because they knew that the money and support Britain could offer was immense. Yet, Germany attacked Belgium, the only country with a signed treaty. It was a gamble, and one that blew up in the Germans' face, because this war isn't over in a year or by the time the leaves fall. This war isn't over in two years. It takes over four years to fight and 40 million casualties before it's done with. Now, see, this is where we see how World War I is different. In the first battles, it becomes clear that you can't fight these battles like previous wars. The German machine guns cut down 42,000 French soldiers in two days of the first battle, in the Battle of the Ardennes Forest in 1914. Some of these French soldiers are still wearing the bright red and blue uniforms from the Napoleonic times. Nothing paints a brighter target than a blue jacket and a helmet with red feathers on it. The Germans are doing quick work in France, but it's not enough. They're stopped in September of 1914, and the Schlieffen plan falls apart. The First Battle of the Marne sees Germany get within 30 miles of Paris. The French army is supported by 6,000 soldiers who have to be transported by taxis that are driven to the front. The Germans have to dig in against these reinforcements and the French artillery that finally arrives, and here is where the first trenches are created. This starts a series of escalating battles that are stuck in place. With the power of artillery and machine guns, trenches are really your only option. Both sides have to dig in, facing across no man's land to each other and attempting to breach the other side. In April 1915, the Germans launch a new attack with chlorine gas to try and stop the stalemate of trench warfare. 5,000 French troops are killed at this, the Second Battle of Ypres, as they are unprepared. They had no idea they needed gas masks yet, but they quickly learn. Don't just think that it's trenches either, or that it's stuck in France and Belgium. April of 1915 also sees the Gallipoli campaign start, which is a horrible failure on the part of the British Navy to try and stop Germany's new allies, the Ottoman Empire, who threw their lot in with Germany, from gaining ground. The fight is muddy and dangerous and bloody, and the British and French, with their imperial troops, lose more than 200,000 men in nine months. This failure is immense and eventually sees the British government at the time fall apart and a new prime minister has to be chosen. By February 1916, the infamous battles are starting. Verdun begins. 
This battle at Verdun is going to see 300,000 French and German soldiers die in the almost year-long battle. It starts in February and it won't end until December of 1916. One soldier who fought at Verdun wrote, On the 17th, at 10 o'clock in the morning, they started to bombard us with large caliber shells for 10 hours. It was enough to drive you mad. Another soldier wrote, Anyone who has not seen these fields of carnage will never be able to imagine it. When one arrives here, the shells are raining down everywhere. With each step one takes, but in spite of this, it is necessary for everyone to go forward. One has to go out of one's way not to pass over a corpse lying at the bottom of the communication trench. Farther on, there are many wounded to tend to, others who are carried back on stretchers to the rear. Some are screaming, others are pleading. One sees some who don't have legs, other without any heads, who have been left for several weeks on the ground. One soldier who's stuck near Fort Choiseul at Verdun wrote that it is an unending hell. I live in a casement at the bottom of the fort with a light on day and night. You can't go out for fear of shell fragments which fall daily into the trenches and onto the fort. In a word, it is solitude in all its horror. When will this veritable martyrdom end? During the time of the Long Battle of Verdun, the first naval battle also occurs in May of 1916. Jutland, a fight between the first new battleships of Britain and Germany, starts, ending for a victory in Britain, but barely. The stalemate lasts on land as well as it does on sea. Also in 1916, a big year for World War I, the terrible Battle of the Somme began on July 1st. The British lose 20,000 men in the first day. Right before the battle started, one soldier who fought at the Somme, named Donald Murray, wrote, The previous night, at around 12 p.m., each dugout had a stone bottle of rum put into the dugout, a gallon bottle, and nearly every man was drunk, blind drunk. I thought to myself, this looks to me like a sacrifice. And I never touched any. I didn't have a single drink. I determined to keep my head, and it's just as well that I did. When the battle began, a different soldier wrote, it was just as if we were at if we were at a training exercise, which was really, I suppose, absolutely mad when you come to think of it. We were just in extended order with everything on your back, your rifle and bayonet, your entrenching tool and everything else. We were just walking, straight lines, towards the German line in extended order. Well, we were sitting ducks all the way. Our earlier training you see for open warfare, run so far, then lie down, then run a bit further. But this was just walking, straight into a death trap. Hundreds of us, just hopeless. Donald Murray again describes the aftermath of this bloodbath. He writes, It seemed to me eventually that I was just one man left. I couldn't see anybody at all. All I could see was men lying dead, men screaming, men on the barbed wire with their bowels hanging down, shrieking. I thought, what can I do? I was just alone in a hell of fire and smoke and stink, and so I began to creep back towards the line, through shell holes, through the mud, and down into the trench, and still there was nobody there. Gradually we congregated in ones and twos. Four and a half months later, there would be over one million dead as the Battle of the Somme drew to a close. By 1917, the battles were not looking any more promising for either side. The Third Battle of Ypres, now more widely referred to simply as Passchendaele, was a horror experience in filthy conditions. 
It was going to rain every day but three in the month of August of 1917, and the battle continued into November for Passchendaele. Many of the exhausted soldiers no longer thought of the enemy as wearing a uniform. It was the mud, deep and devouring. A wounded man came to fear death by drowning in this mud, a greater dread than a rogue artillery shell. The rain was relentless. It made aerial bombardment impossible, and it also impeded the transport of heavy guns. Jack Dillon, a soldier at Passchendaele, wrote, Now the mud at Passchendaele was very viscous indeed, very tenacious. It stuck to you. The mud there wasn't liquid. It wasn't porridge. It was a curious kind of sucking mud. When you got off this track with your load, it drew at you. Not like quicksand, but a real monster that sucked at you. Major Fox of the 502nd Field Company, Royal Engineers for Britain, he wrote, There was no ground to walk on. The earth had been plowed up by artillery shells, not only once, but over and over again, and so thoroughly that nothing solid remained to step on. There was just loose, disintegrated, far-flung earth, merging into slimy, treacherous mud and water round shell holes, so interlaced that the circular form of only the largest and most recently made could be distinguished. The infantry and the outposts moved hourly from shell hole to shell hole, occupying those that had just been made and which had not in consequence yet been filled with water. All honor to them and the way they stuck it. Covered with mud, wet to the skin, bitterly cold, stiff and benumbered with exposure, cowed and deadened by the monotony of 48 hours in extreme danger and by the constant casualties among their mates, they hung on to existence by a thin thread of discipline rather than by any spark of life. Some of the feebler and more highly strung deliberately ended their lives. Mud was a real enemy in World War I. With artillery shells churning up the earth and a heavy rain, it created mud traps on almost every battleground. One story about a soldier traveling between the French lines goes like this. The soldier is sent back to give a message to headquarters, miles and miles behind the frontline trench. On his way, he encounters a fellow soldier trapped in the mud up to his knees. He can't get out, and the traveling soldier can't help him out after even an hour of trying. He says he's on his way to headquarters and will come back with help. Unfortunately, the soldier's trip took him days to return. He had to dodge artillery fire, and he got delayed. Three days later, when he encountered the man stuck in mud again, this time it was up to his neck, and the man had gone mad. He begged the soldier to end his pain before the mud drowned him, so the traveling soldier had to shoot the man in the head to end his suffering. Now this stalemate kept going. The Allies, Britain, France, and Russia, had been holding out, keeping the Germans from advancing. In 1917, however, the Russian Tsar fell to a new uprising by the common people, the Bolsheviks. The Tsar abdicated, and the new Bolshevik government pulled out of the war. The Germans, who had been losing ground until then, were overjoyed. They planned a new push, emboldened with new troops that had come from fighting the Russian front. The German Spring Offensive was to begin in 1917. The German plan was known as the Kaiserschlacht, or Kaiser's Battle. The first phase, Operation Michael, was to begin in March of 1918. In the dark early hours of the 21st of March, the Germans began an enormous bombardment of the British lines. Walter Rappelt, a soldier for the Germans, took part in the barrage and explained, It was just an unimaginable amount of guns which was in position. 
I had to direct the guns, use my tables to adjust for the strength and direction of wind, and at a certain time the barrage started all at one time, a terrific intensity. Normally we used to protect our ears when the gun was discharged by just holding our hands against the ears, but this time that was pretty impossible. The effect for that was that for a few days afterwards I was almost deaf. Five hours later, finally, the devastating bombardment of the British lines ended. Highly trained German infantry left their trenches and crossed no man's land, which was shrouded that morning in mist and fog. The fog helped the Germans to surprise the British, who were still recovering from the intense shelling. British Private Arthur Baxter described the chaotic conditions. All them trained troops. This morning they come over the top, and it was that foggy. I'd never seen a foggy morning like it. I've read since it was so thick, some sort of mist. They captured a hospital, big guns, little guns, every mortal thing. I and a chap named Jock Nicholson, we got parted from our company. I don't know how, because it was so foggy. The British line was severely weakened, but it did not break. In many places, British troops, such as Frederick Plimmer, put up a determined resistance. He explains... They advanced, you see. It was fine then. A beautiful day, no fog, no gas, no nothing. Just a few odd shells. And some of our people were coming back, retiring from in front of us. And then we just waited. Then all of a sudden we saw the Germans come over the hill, waves of them. I should think about half a mile away, something like that. Probably a little more. They were in machine gun range. So we only had a couple of guns, but the infantry had several Lewis guns. And we were down to nothing. There was only me and one bloke on this one gun. The other gun, I, I don't know where it was, it was somewhere. They came down the slope and we just had to fire at them. Despite a resistance, the Germans made swift and significant gains in their initial assault of the spring offensive. For the first time, the British were forced back, retreating. By April, the Germans had advanced 40 miles, some of the biggest gains you saw in World War I. And though the German attack had been spectacular in terms of land conquered, it had also been expensive in terms of men lost. Between March and April, the Germans suffered 230,000 casualties. The German army simply could not sustain such a loss. And at this time, American troops poured into the Western Front in 1918. By the end of March, 250,000 American troops joined the conflict. And Ludendorff, that guy from the beginning, had not planned for the scenario very well. Neither... Ludendorff nor the Kaiser could face the inevitable. By June of 1918, the German army had been so severely weakened by the large number of casualties that on July 15, 1918, Ludendorff ordered a last gasp effort, a last offensive for the German army at the Second Battle of the Marne. It was a disaster. The Germans advanced two miles into land held by allies, but their losses were huge. The French army let the Germans advance, knowing that their supply lines were stretched to the limit. Then, the French hit back on the Marne, and a massive French counterattack took place. Between March and July 1918, the Germans lost one million men. Then, the Allies sprung their attack to try and end the war. The Allied offensive at Amiens began on the 8th of August, 1918. It was an international effort of British and French forces with a single American division, and it was spearheaded by Australian and Canadian troops. The expensive lessons of the Somme, Passchendaele, Verdun all came together, with the proper maintenance of the element of surprise, integration of new air power from planes, cavalry, infantry, tanks, 
and moving men in single file, rather than extended lines that could be more easily targeted. The Germans were pushed back at points nine miles along a ten-mile front. There were heavy German casualties, and many prisoners were taken as whole units surrendered. The battle was an Allied success. This boosted Allied morale and further destroyed that of the German army. By 1919, the World War forever changed the globe. Entire regions had been decimated, trees blown apart by artillery, making whole forests into empty fields. The fields at Verdun are so damaged that the holes in the earth are barely healed to this day. Some of those hills are still poisoned by gas seeped into the water and absorbed by the muddy ground. This war saw Europe damaged so heavily that an entire generation of men from cities and towns were gone, vanished from their homes and their lives, killed in the meat grinder of a war. This was a war of attrition, and both sides came perilously close to losing. The influx of American troops helped bolster the Allies, but at the end of the war, France and Britain wanted to say in how things ended. The American president, Woodrow Wilson, sought peace, but France and Britain sought revenge for their dead. Germany was punished severely in the Treaty of Versailles. There was no longer an Austro-Hungary to punish. Their empire had crumbled in the onslaught of the war. Germany alone stood to take the fall, and the Treaty of Versailles treated them as such. These punishments, just or not, paved the way for how Europe would heal, or how it would scab over, just in time for the humiliated Germany to rise up again under a new dictator, viciously looking to finish what the Kaiser had started. And that's this week's story. Next week, we'll discuss the Germany that existed after this war, and how the crime, humiliation, rampant drug use, and even some necrophilia led to the rise of the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler. So thank you all for listening to a kind of depressing story this week. And if you're one of my students, please, please finish your work. If you're not, thank you all for listening, and I'll talk with you all next time. Bye-bye. Just as heavy as lead, but we never get up to the sergeant rings our breakfast up to bed.